Good morning and welcome to the latest episode of Tech Salescraft with me, James Hounslow. And today I am delighted that we have got Pete Blackhurst with us today. Pete, how are you doing? I'm very well, James. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So I'm going to ask you to have a little bit of a chat through, but I'm just going to let viewers know who you are and why we've got you uh, on here. So you are currently the Vice President of Revenue International over at Trackforce Valiant. And I wanted to get you onto the show to talk through your how you scout out talent, how you identify an interview, and then creating that winning culture. I think in a, in a time where sales teams have been scaled pretty quickly over the last 18 months, understanding how to bring everybody together in a winning environment, particularly where we've got this hybrid working from home and in the office. But before we get into that detail, it would be great for you, Pete, just to give a bit of background so people know uh, who you are. Sure. Thanks, James. Thanks for the introduction. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm the VP of Revenue for Trackforce Valiant across International. I've been in sales for all of my life, 22 years, feel old now. But uh, And from there, I've taken a lot of good things along the way, made a lot of mistakes at the same time. And management was something I always wanted to get into. A uh, little bit of a story, My first, one of my first sales jobs, uh, I was a BDR. First day on the job, I was giving a Yellow Pages and a phone and asked to make some calls. Now, the onboarding wasn't there. The culture wasn't there in that organization. And ever since I've progressed throughout my career, I put together, which we'll talk about today, sort of a methodology around how I bring culture inside of an organization. So, yeah, I've, I've done a lot of things in sales, been in a lot of different companies, mainly around SaaS across uh, the enterprise sales structure. But looking forward to running through this today, James. Excellent. So at what point in your sales career did you decide that a leadership was something you wanted to do, but also that you felt you might actually be good at? That's a good question. So I think I looked at some of the managers I had early on in my career and thought there was a gap to do something better. Things have changed a lot over the course of the last years. You know, I focus a lot on the person, the individual, and how to drive that winning culture, not just the number. When I started out in my career, it was just the dollar sign. You're, this person is a number and we need to get the most out of them. So I sort of gap. From there, I've always throughout my younger, younger life, you know, I was always a part of teams, football teams, cricket teams, and I was looking to be the captain and I was the captain. So from there, that sort of drove my leadership appeal and what I wanted to do. And I've taken that and been successful for that throughout my career. Again, just focus on the person, not the number, and the, the numbers will follow. Excellent. How did you find when you focused on the person yeah. that in, in most sales environment, there is a pressure of a, of a number. Yeah. And when you focus on the person, do you find that the performance comes pretty quickly or is there a performance curve? And if there is a performance curve, how well do you manage upwards that you need time before delivery arrives? Well, ramping individuals can vary everyone puts a timeline on it in different organizations yeah but it's important to firstly onboard correctly uh, and you have to have a solid onboarding strategy and that varies of course but people sometimes have this boilerplate plan how to onboard someone and make them ramp up and be successful but for me that's flawed because every individual has different things they need to learn at any one time to be successful, if that answers your, your yeah. question. You know, going back to the culture, companies with high culture have high performance. Yeah. High performance with no culture is burnout. 
And we see a lot of burnout in this industry. If you can onboard organically someone into your organization, bring them into the culture that you've implemented and make them part of that team, then they're going to have more success. That's how we, how I implement and drive that throughout my, uh, throughout my team. I like it. So what's really important to a sales leader, uh, a successful sales leader is talent. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You need to surround yourself with the right people that are going to enable you to achieve a number that has been given to you. So if we look at that to start with, if you're looking to scale a sales team or looking to just bring one person in, how do you go about identifying what you need to hire? I look at traits. The, the, with the pandemic, people working from home, there was a, there was a big push, wasn't there, around getting the best talent inside of your organization. And things have dropped off a bit now in different organizations, but it's also hard to find great talent because the talent were going for a number and they were going to go and work at the large organizations. Now we're on a smaller side of a SaaS organization and, you know, will great talent either pick the Salesforce of this world or ourselves, they'll go to, to Salesforce. So for me, finding great talent, I looked outside of the, or thought outside of the box and say, Hey, look, we don't need someone who's got SaaS experience. I can pick someone who's got experience in a certain sector or they're fresh out of university. From there, you can mold them to make them the next A player. Now, there's a certain traits that I look at. Of course, drive is one, coachability and passion. They're three things that I look at. Now, I can speak to someone in the first five minutes when I'm doing a, a first round call and see that they've got what it takes to go to the next level. Now, those people, not everyone is going to succeed, but if they've got some of those traits, then of course you can then coach them and bring them up to speed very, very quickly. But the thing is passion and wanting to, the burning desire to actually want to win and have that ability that if someone tells you or coaches you that maybe that's not the best way, this could be the best way, and they take that on board and you see the changes in their ability, that's better than someone having 10 years of SaaS experience and coming from a competitor, in my opinion. So I just want to put the, the brakes on there and just take it one step before that, um, because I think there's there's some really good detail that we can unpack there in, in terms of how you're, you're interviewing. But how do you decide what you want? So before you go out to either your network or a recruitment agency to bring you CVs, how do you decide what you you want to, to bring in from a experience standpoint years in sales sector how do you decide right this is this is the profile this is the ideal profile of what i'd like to have in front of me yeah i don't think there's one size fits all james and that's a very good question so i I, the big thing that that uh, annoys me a little bit is everyone has to a lot of job specs nowadays is you have to have a university experience to me, that's a waste of time. One, because I didn't go to university. I came straight out of school and got into sales. But two, what difference does that make? Some people haven't got a, a good of a step up in their, in their life to be able to do that. But there are some, some great talent out there. So again, there's not so, one size that fits all. So what I want is to see someone who, as I said before, who is in a couple of years, if they've been a BDR or an SDR and they've got what it takes and they've lasted, 10 years important. You don't want to see people moving around organizations every three or four months or someone who's fresh out of university. And from there, again, you then want to go back to what I said before. You want to see that they've got the passion and drive to be able to do that. But you you do see a lot of job specs that try and get a certain individual 
or get as close to it as possible. And you know this more than me with what you do. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to try and find someone who fits or ticks all of those boxes. Yeah. So for me, it's someone who's, 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 who's hungry, who's got the passion and wanted to win. And then yeah. you, can, you can take them on that journey because it is a journey. And if people can see the bigger picture of where they can go, then, of course, you want them inside of your organization. Does that answer your question? It does. It does. So here's the challenge. Once you've got that profile in front of you that interests you as much as it, as it can be, you're going to get much more out of a conversation. How do you find out if someone has that coachability, that passion? Because from a development standpoint, if you are hiring developers, we'll test you on code. We'll, we'll see how good your coding ability is. When you're talking to salespeople, one of the main things that will get kind of an associated with a salesperson is that they can they can talk yeah. a good game. Yeah. How do you understand what you're trying to achieve uh, and then test whether or not what they're saying to you is this person is actually coachable, this person does have the right passion around what I'm looking for from a salesperson? But what I don't do is ask them to sell me that, this pen because that's very old hat, but that does still happen, as, 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 we, as we all know. Simple question. Tell me a time when someone gave you some feedback and how did you react? Because yeah. the feedback aspect is the one that you can understand if they are coachable. Yeah. From there, then, you will do some role play. I always do role play in an interview process. I think it's valuable. If you're not doing role play, you should implement it. Not at the first call. You'll yeah. go through rounds of calls. And then from there, you'll do a role play session. Yeah. So you'll give, you'll give that said person a brief and ask them to come. And if it's uh, for an SDR, you'll ask them to do a discovery call. And then they'll do that discovery call. And then you'll feed back. And then you'll ask them to do it again. And then from there, if you can see, now there's going to be, they're going to be nervous. Of course they are. That's just totally natural. I'm fine with people being nervous because it shows that they actually want to do well. You're, yeah. you're more concerned if they're not nervous. From there, that the pointers that you're giving them around where they, where I believe they could do better, then they'll play it back again. Then you can see if they're listening. And for me, that's coachability. And how does that work? So I can see how you can get buy-in from an SDR to do that. Predominantly a university lever, first or second job. What if it's a senior sales hire? Do you do the same thing? You do the, the role play and then you give them the feedback and then you ask them to do it again? Yeah, so, you know, AEs will need yeah. to do discovery calls because no demo before discovery, right? That's the way, yeah. that's the process I implement. So at the end of the day, I'll ask them to do the next stage of the process that I'm a prospect. I want them to go through and here's a set of things we set out before the, before the meeting. So I'll give them some ideas of this is who I am. This is where we're going with this opportunity. And then they'll discover to me. And then from there, we'll treat it as a live scenario, how they're going to take the opportunity to the next stage. And then they'll present back to me what they've got. They don't have to demo anything because there's no product there to demo. But yeah. they would treat it as either their current company, a made-up company, or they're going to play back my company I'm interviewing the position for. You can then see, you can feed back again, and then you can see if they've got what it takes to move it forward. Interesting. And... That comes at a last stage. Now, do you do the role play instead of some form of presentation? Yeah. So what I don't like is someone coming, and I've, we've, we all learned from our mistakes in the past. You ask someone to do a presentation and they'll come with 20, 30 slides and you're just going to switch off. 
you might as well just use it as a live environment of where you're how, where they how they're going to be in that specific job so yeah don't want to see a presentation i want to see how they will treat an opportunity and yes it's role play it's not 100 real but let's treat it as it is and then we we'll can see how they're going to do moving forward i think that's more valuable than asking someone to present back a 20 slides on their 30 60 90 day plan now of course you want to understand how they're going to come in and make a difference but i don't want them to present that 30 60 90 day plan back to me there and then because they'll just get it off the internet and it can it doesn't mean actually mean anything so here so 80 percent of your peers yeah will ask them to do a 30 60 90 presentation at the end or they'll come up with some sort of presentation for candidates to go and do what would you say you've gained by not doing the presentation when we're looking at a lot of sales leaders will say that they would like to get hiring right more often? You are in that part where you probably get it right more often than most people. And you're doing something significantly different to what a lot of people are. And, and I sit in the best chair in the house to know what people are doing. And a 30, 60, 90 presentation is the go-to at the end of a sales process. So what are you gaining by doing the role play instead of the presentation? And if you were to advise a, a group of sales leaders as to why they should do it your way and not that way, what would it be? Yeah, well, I'll challenge them. What are they getting from the 30, 60, 90 plan? Because everyone's is the same. They just rip it off the internet, James. It, it's obvious. And how do you know they're going to do that? Because it's what you expect anyway. They're the yeah. expectations when someone comes into the role. You know what they're going to be. And yeah. if they... If it's an AE role, they've done it before. I can dig into a lot more detail by implement, implementing the role play session because I can see if that person can, one, do the job and what they've said they are throughout the interview process and also can understand if they are coachable or they're curious or they have empathy and they want to do well, then you're going to get more out of that than a 30, 60, 90 day plan. So I would say to people out there who maybe think, are they missing the mark? Do the role play sessions. People don't like role play, but I do. It shows that the person who's on the other side of the screen, because most of it is done now remotely, can do the job. And you can see how they're going to go and represent your organization in opportunities. And that's only the start, because they're going to come in and you're going to do the continuous learning, continuous coaching moving forward. How often do you say no to people at role play stage? Well, I'd like to think then getting to role play stage they've done a good job so far. It's yeah. a very low percentage because if they completely, completely mess it up. What yeah. you do find though, to get to role play stage, sometimes you don't win the candidate. They've got four or five different offers on the table uh, and you'll get to the role play stage and sometimes they just don't want to do it. At that stage, I don't like to say no because you've gathered certain traits in that individual and you'd like to think that they can move to the next stage. So it's very, very low. Yeah. So particularly, you've obviously grown your, your, your sales team over, over recent times, and it's been probably one of the busiest markets for hiring salespeople. There's lots of opportunity. There's been a huge amount of investment into European tech companies. And when investment goes into a tech startup, that normally means we're going to hire some salespeople. How have you managed to stick to your process when you would received a CV and probably said, right, they're at final stage X, Y, and Z? to make sure that you don't bypass what's a very important process to just get a bum on a seat? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think not not every organization, but I do think the hiring process takes too long. If you agree on that, I've known people who've gone through eight or nine different rounds of interviews and it's taken three or four weeks to get there and people are just left on the hook. Now, why would anyone want to work for an organization that takes that long to do that? I don't understand. 
So you've got to stick to your guns. You've got to roll out that process because it's very important because you're hiring people and the investment in that person is, is, is a cost to the business. But if you can streamline the process and make it quick and that person goes along for the ride with you, then you can you can wrap it up in a week. Yeah. Easy. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, about you know the process and people left hanging on. I think we need to treat people better of how we... Not me, not me personally, but the industry as a whole of where we interview candidates and how we treat them throughout the process. Yeah, so I think it comes down to a couple of reasons as to why processes take a, a while. And each section is, is, is different. If I take the easiest one, the lead doesn't really, they're, they're busy and they don't really see the importance of the person. It's like, you're lucky to get a job here if, if you want it. Then you've got the fear of making a mistake. And they want to see more people because their process doesn't identify. And I, you know, I'm constantly saying to people, you can wait. A better CV will always come along, but the nearest one to you will always be what you prefer because it's what you've just seen. So what you've got to be able to do is identify if the first person is right because they tick your boxes, then they're right. Otherwise, your process is wrong. If you've got to see three people to prove that that first person was right, then your process is flawed. You have to back yourself that you've got a process in place to identify the right candidates. But it'd be like, oh no, um, the VCs won't like it unless I've seen five people. Your VC's not hiring them, right? Your VC's invested in you to make a decision. So make a decision, and guess what? You're allowed to get it wrong. Just get it wrong quickly. Just fail fast, don't keep them and, and whatnot, but just have a process that is in play. The other bit is actually know what your process is before you start. People get excited or they wanna hire and they don't actually know what needs to happen within the organization to be able to, to make it happen and do it. You also have challenges if the, the sales leader is also selling because yeah. if they're under pressure, most things that you'll see that people are, are time poor in everything around a growing organization. If you've got true faith in your process that you've put in place there, then you should be able to turn a process around very quickly. Everybody's bought in, everyone's on the same page and they know what their roles are. When do you meet the candidates? Do you, if it's, if it's an, a senior account executive, do you meet them at the first stage? Do you do that first screening call? Where, where do you come into the picture? I like to be first up, James, because I'm the one who's providing the vision of the organization where we're going. Now, it's important. Now, the bigger the company gets, they yeah. like to implement that from a people ops HR perspective. Yeah. And they can do a great job. And they need to be involved in the process. Of course they do, because they provide invaluable information. But... I like to be up first. Now, it depends which region, because I manage international. If yeah. it's in the French region, of course, I'll allow my sales director in France to provide that vision and be the first up. You need to have that, that process. It's so important. You mentioned a great thing earlier about the rule of three in, in uh, hiring. Now, we're never always going to get three. It's no. just not going to happen, you know, <laughs> because there's so much talent out there, but they're going for so many different jobs. So if you've got one, they interview well, and you really like them then just bite the bullet and move forward. Yeah. It's, it's a no-brainer. If, you, if you've taken him through everything that you've implemented, but then get to it and go, actually, maybe we need to wait, then as you rightly said, your process is flawed, and you need to look at your process. Because if yeah. you don't do your own process, then what's the point? So where when did you figure out that you needed to always be that first person on the call? Because it's never been so important than over the last year or so, where it's gone on the days where the first interview question would have been, why should we hire you? And most candidates sitting in front of, particularly good candidates will be sitting in front of someone. If I provided you with uh, with a candidate, they'll say, 
James told me I, I had to meet you and I, I'm not really looking, but I couldn't miss out. So actually, I need to reverse that and say, why should I work for you? So when did you decide that actually? And, and also, what's really interesting to me is that not only did you say you were first up, but you said you were first up to provide the vision of the company and where it's going, not to check that they're um, the right candidate to be through the process. So not only have you got timing right, but why you're doing it is also correct. So when did you work that out? And what value have you found by being on that phone call first and selling basically the organization and the opportunity to getting the candidates you want in a quick time? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I haven't had loads of jobs over my career, but I, you've always go through an interview process and I've been through many over my career and there's yeah. been a lot of bad. There's been more bad than good, okay? So you get people coming on and it might, it might be the HR manager first and foremost, and they'll do one round. Then they pass you on to the next round. And you don't actually get to the person who's going to show you the vision. Now, the biggest thing for me when you're creating a team and creating culture is the common goal. What, what is our why? We all know Simon Sinek. If we don't, people listening go and watch Simon Sinek. What is the why? Companies know how and what they do, but they don't know the why. That's the passion, yeah? I'm a very passionate individual. It's up to me to provide that vision to the candidate. Do they want to actually come and work for us? It's not a one-way street. It's very important that they want to come on board. And if you provide that to that individual, then one, they're going to get the first step up because they're probably interviewing four or five different places. And they people work for people they like. It's like people buy off people they like. So that's why I, I'm first up. I provide the vision. And then you want to give them a good experience. Because apart from product and customers, they're very, very important. But when, you, when you're when you in a startup phase, depending on what scale, one of the most important things, or if not the most important thing, are people, are yeah. your employees. Because you're going to have to hire a lot to get from A to B. And then if you haven't got a good process and you can't provide the vision, then you're a little bit lost. Yeah. So yeah, that's where I figured it out a long time ago. And that's why I like to be first up. Because if I can't provide the vision, then who's going? To, who else is going to? And everyone should be on the same page. I like it. Moving on to my next favorite topic, creating. Uh, so once you've, you're, you're building this team, you're hiring. There's, as I say, there's people that have gone from having a couple of sales reps to seven, eight, nine, ten. How do you create a winning culture and keep motivating your sales team to do what you've hired them to, um, to do, particularly in a hybrid world, whereas before people used to always be in the office to now sometimes never going into an office or, or a couple of days a week. Sure. So the world did change a lot a couple of years ago, but you know, you, if you implement a, a solid process or teams, then it's all about how to drive that winning culture. So I've implemented a methodology I've come up with myself over the course of my career. And I, I call it the five C's. Okay. The five C's first and foremost, I alluded to earlier, the common goal. Uh, what is our why? What is our passion? Now for me, Positions are temporary, James. Yeah. yeah. The way you treat people will always be remembered. So everyone needs to remember that. Okay. The title's just a title. But first and foremost, I like to be there in the weeds with my team to showcase that at the end of the day, we're all individuals and yeah. we all need to work together to create that winning culture. So the common goal is the top. First C, our why. What do we do? What is our passion? What are we doing on a day-to-day -day basis to achieve our goals? And that's very important. A lot of organizations don't do that. The yeah. next is collaboration, teamwork. Now, 
everyone throughout the pandemic find it very, very challenging because they're on Teams, Zoom and all of the above. Yeah, you just you're just managing on a screen. But that gave an opportunity to everyone to promote more teamwork because yeah. you see each other daily. If you're in the office and you've got a global team, you're not always on calls. Yeah. So it gave me a fantastic chance to be able to one promote more teamwork across the team, foster those team ideas. You know yourself. The good thing about, well, the best thing for me as a leader, and what I'm what I'm here to do is remove roadblocks and create new leaders. Okay. Yeah. Also, the best thing in my job. If I bring people in who have got more talent than me in different areas, we're going to have a better team. Yeah. You see all the time that people don't do that. They'll, they're scared to hire people who, who have got maybe more skills than them in certain areas, specifically leaders, and that's why they fail. The collaboration aspect, more so than ever, is so, so important. And it allows you to get quickly through issues. You see it a lot with teams. The reason they haven't got a good culture is because there's a lot of backstabbing, specifically in sales, and yeah. no one gets on and no one shares any ideas. And it's just all very siloed. Yeah. I hate silos. Like break down those silos, be very transparent. And that's the, the next one with communication and trust. Now, a strong sales culture cannot be built by one individual. Yeah. Everyone has to get on board. You know that, right? So I'll be the one waving the flag, like this is where we should go, this is the direction we need to go in. But then not just the team, but other management, other management individuals need to get on board. We need to be agile in our approaches. It's not one size fits all. If you make a mistake, you pivot. We're, we're, we're a SaaS organization, generally smaller, smaller teams. Yeah. Larger SaaS organizations are different, of course, but you have to build organizational trust. Accountability across the team, empathy, a high emotional intelligence, which is a buzzword at the moment. And one of the biggest ones is no micromanaging. Yeah. I see it all the time. You've got a process, you onboard individuals, you know, you speak to them on a you, you weekly calls, but I've seen it a lot and it still happens. You've got morning and afternoon calls every single day with your team because the manager doesn't trust what the team are doing. Trust what the team are doing. You've got a good process. Um, they don't want you to breathing down their neck. So just a touch point on that then. Yeah. Where- the, the boundary between someone's at home and like don't keep calling them to micromanage them but where's the boundary on how often are you talking to them and what are you talking about because sometimes if you don't talk to them there'll be certain types of characters that'll be oh they don't love me they're not talking to me so how do you how often are you talking to them and are there certain ones that you'll talk to more because you know they need it and others just want to be left alone yeah, of course. So you usually do your weekly call anyway for your weekly sales call. Of course you do, because especially in a remote world, you need to be on that more. Now, I'm not saying don't speak to them. I'll have a couple of sprint calls each week, Tuesday, Thursday, plus my Monday sales call. I don't do Tuesday and then afternoon and Wednesday afternoon because it's too much. But it's how you implement your leadership style to your team. Okay, so we'll say to them, look, you're onboarded. My job as a leader is to help make you successful. You've got roadblockers, you come to me. I work with an open door policy, okay? You can email me, Slack me, WhatsApp me any one time. Never be scared to call me. If I don't hear anything from you, I believe there's there's no issues, okay? So we talk through that, of course. Now, depending on what stage they're in, we're going to go through deal reviews. They're going to call to to ask questions. And I find it's uh, a very collaborative environment that way. If I'm calling them every 10 minutes to go, what's going on? Why aren't you doing this? Uh, This is not acceptable then they're going to get burnt down. And, and people like freedom. Now, of course, you know if that person's not doing their job. I've got all the tools in the background to see that. 
Now I can see if they're if they're not hitting their numbers or they're not hitting their KPIs. But if people need to speak to me, I say to them, pick up the phone. Yeah. I'll drop in on people every now and again to see how they are. And we'll catch up every couple of weeks or every month or every quarter in certain areas in London. So it's not that I don't speak to them or I speak to them too much. It's them knowing, never be scared to call. Um, you, can, you can get hold of me anytime. And then we've got those touch point calls throughout the week to say, hey, okay, Tuesday morning's a sprint call. How, how are you getting on? How's your day? How was yesterday? Any issues we need to talk through? Yeah. And then from there, if they raise it, you can, okay, we can have a sidebar conversation. We can set something up later. It's, it's, you agree it between both parties. You see yeah. where I'm coming from. So yeah. that's how I implement that throughout my team. And it, it seems to work. But every individual is different and every leader is different and they've got their own way. So how do you handle your Monday sales call? There's a sales leader that I really respect. So I'm really well out in Asia. And he says, when he does his weekly sales call, all he's asking is, what's your biggest challenge right now? He said, a lot of people will talk through a CRM. And he goes, but I don't see the point because I know that information on the CRM. So it's a waste of my time and it's a waste of their time, me just to ask them why their CRM looks like that or, or talk through. But where's your viewpoint? What does your weekly sales call look like? Well, first and foremost, you talk about personal things. If you want, you talk about the weekend. Of course you yeah. do remotely. So you want to understand, and it's sometimes hard to get people motivated on a Monday. So I want to understand what people did at the weekend. And if no one wants to share, I'll always share. Yeah. There has to be that level, that personal level as well. Not, not everything, but it just shows you're a human being. Okay. And then from there, we'll talk about, okay, how their week was last week. Everyone want to share anything about your week last week and yeah. start having those conversations then I'll provide company updates. Always up to me to provide company updates, James. Okay, I want to be as transparent as a leader as possible. That's another one of my, you know, uh, things I implement across the team to drive that winning culture is transparency. Yeah. Okay, so I'll talk as much as I can about things that are going on and where we're going and updates. Not every time do I go through a CRM and go through pipeline because guess what? Start of a quarter, I'll go through one-to-one pipeline reviews. Yeah? yeah, there are certain times that you will bring it up and say, hey, How's everyone getting on? Is there anything we want to talk about in the pipeline around deals? So you can't not do that yeah. at all because it's important and you're going to have to have those conversations at some point. And sometimes you'll look at the overall metrics across the team from uh, SDR perspective and inbound perspective because you're talking about what's going on in the business. Also, there's a lot of headwinds at the moment. So I'll yeah. talk a lot about that. What we've got going on in the market. Yeah. Why are we seeing what we're seeing? What are our customers saying? with regards to what's going on in the market. So it's sort of a collaborative environment. And that's how I run it. Not just, hey, team, let's get on this call. We're going to go through pipeline and CRM because that doesn't get anyone anywhere. But you're going to have to do that. You have to go through the CRM at some point. So since you mentioned Simon Sinek earlier, I love a lot of what he he talks about. And he mentions the, uh, the spotlight culture for the military in the US and but also I've been listening to a lot of Stephen Bartlett's diary of a CEO and one of the ones I really liked was Rio Ferdinand's one and when he said looking at United and when he was at Manchester United compared to other football teams that he was out around what winning culture looked like in his time at United Alex Ferguson came into the training ground dressing room only a handful of times and the culture didn't change and he saw when he was in other dressing rooms, if the manager wasn't there, things changed. In an environment where people are more away from you at home, how do you ensure that you haven't got that spotlight culture 
and that people are doing everything the same as that that Manchester United dressing room where everybody was basically bought into what's going on and how do you know that's that's going on yeah good question again it goes back to the vision right so I don't have to be on every single call and in every single conversation yeah know that the team are doing the right thing because again it comes from the outset when you're talking about the vision and where we're going and the passion of the team and the expectations you know I've got high expectations of course I have my my team know that the attention yeah. to detail I've got is second to none but they know that when I talk about how I, my expectations and what I need to be accountable for as a leader and what they need to be accountable for. Now, look, if that said person's not doing it and you can see that's not happening, then that's a different conversation. But I also listen to Stephen Bartlett and one of the best ones I've listened to, well, there's a couple, uh, but one being a Liverpool fan, it's hard to say, was the one with Gary Neville. And yeah. he talked about the same thing. Yeah. And it's unbelievable how much Alex Ferguson had an effect over that team. And you can see now it's, it's changed a lot, but yeah. it's the same in sales, right? You, you, they need to understand that at the end, we're all on the same page and working together as a unit to get to the next level and how we get there is important. There's going to be some ups, there's going to be some downs and, but everyone's accountable for what they do on a day-to-day basis. If you implement that in the right way. You don't have to be every single time. It's a very good point, but it does happen a lot, but you need to coach your team how to manage in a remote world and on a day-to-day basis. I like it. So how do you spot when it's going wrong? And how do you react if somebody is not culturally right, but they're smashing their number? Okay, they're not culturally right. Okay, this is a good one. So the, the second, the last two Cs sort of fall into this, continuous learning being one. You have to have a culture of continuous learning. And that's not just sat on a one-to-one call all the time, doing demos and going through process. It comes from a playbook and your process you implement. Supporting individual growth and success is, is, is unbelievably important. I mentioned it before, they're not just dollar signs. You yeah. need to coach and mentor everyone in a different way. Outcomes are driven by process. Process is delivered by coaching. You drive that coaching mentality, then you would expect everyone to progress. Yeah. and be better you can see when it's going wrong if someone is just not picking up the process and you will continue to have sessions with them but they're just not getting any better and then that you're having conversations so yeah. you're not always going to get it right james there are going to be sometimes that they just don't meet those expectations and then you've got to have that conversation the other side of it though was you mentioned they're smashing their number but they're not driving the culture that you want them to drive that's called toxicity and that needs to be stopped. I spoke about this last week at an event I was at. If you've got an A player who's smashing their number, but it's toxic, you get rid of it. It's simple because that is like a, like, it's like a cancer throughout the team. If one person is like that and not wanting to be a part of the team, driving team success, the whole point of an A player is to be, if someone's coming in as a B or a C player, to coach and mentor them because that's what you expect because you want them to also be the next leader. They're not doing that. And if they can't yeah. change, it, it's for me, it's a, it's a no-go. It's a hard one for people because they get to doing so well, but then they're affecting the rest of the team because the problem we've got in the sales world is 10, 20% of the team do 90% of the number. Why is that? It, it, that needs to change for companies to be more successful. 
like it. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time out. Before I let you go, you do have the opportunity to ask me anything you've uh, wanted to ask a recruiter. I don't know if you had time to, to think about that or you have that question you want to throw at me. Sure, I'll ask one on the fly. So what is your biggest challenge now, currently, James, in this world? Because you do it day in, day out, and yeah. it, it does change a lot, but what are your current, or your biggest challenges now in the industry? So this year, the biggest challenge is candidates, um, attracting those those good candidates uh, through the door because there's so much opportunity that is out there. So I started on that side. So for, so from the can side, is getting that attraction because yeah. they're getting hit. Where where you have mass of anything, you get kind of lazy, sloppy bits, and and your sales team will probably be getting five or six emails a day from recruiters and and talent acquisition people just sending an email saying, I've got a rocket ship of an opportunity, you need to have a conversation with me. So the challenge is to be able to get above the noise and to be able to reach those good um, candidates. On the client side, the part that I touched on in the, um, in the process, and um, I like people to use scorecards for their hiring, so they know what they're trying to identify and they're testing for it to get hiring right, rather than trying to just win the hire it's really interesting if someone's interviewing a competitor it's almost like i've got to hire that person because i don't want them to get in it's like well hold on that's like are they right for you um um and and having that the, the correct process in place and knowing what we are hiring for that's been the, the biggest challenge is why are we doing this and how do we fit those people in and trying to introduce a scoring card to make sure that we're identifying for the right traits and the right characteristics and not hiring for market sector knowledge and experience. Sure, the, the weighted scorecards are great. Mark Roberge from HubSpot, great book. He talks yeah. about a lot if you've read that book and I am implemented. You talk about the top traits and you weight yeah. the scorecard accordingly. And yeah. it, it's a great process because it actually works really, really well. So yeah, and then you can see a part of that process where they might not be as strong and what you need yeah. to work on when they do come in. It's an it's an evolution of the process. So It is because most of the say, like we said at the, the start of the show, you'll enjoy most conversations with salespeople and you'll then automatically, there are a lot of salespeople where characteristically it'll be like, I'd love to have a pint with you, but I'd never work with you. <laughs> yeah, we should. The problem is you hire the person you like to have a pint with because they're a salesperson. And if they, you know, a, a lot of, of sales is to be able to tell a good story, but there's a lot of other bits that go along that, right? That's just the art. There is a science and mathematical equation that goes behind it. And if you focus in on the art, then you miss out. And, and the problem is, is if you don't have that scorecard criteria where you're looking for it, you can get too caught up in someone who's telling you a good story and then suddenly you're in and I can you know, I'll say it time and time again, you walk into, it's a bit different now because it's not the same, but back in our day, I could walk into a pub and see a group of blokes and I could tell you who was a salesperson, yeah. right? Because they're all gathered round and the guy's talking and he's got them all bought into what's going on. But you can't hire someone based off of that. You can't. Um, and that's where a scorecard comes in when you say, right, you're looking at coachability. Have you asked your questions around coachability? Or have you ticked all the boxes because they support so-and-so? They do this. This is where they go on holiday. And they recommended X, Y, and Z restaurants and so on and so forth. And it's just they're just a lovely person. Yeah, of course. And uh, you're right. The scorecard analysis is, is so important. People hire people because they like them and salespeople are good individuals to get on with, but they might be missing a lot of traits that you're looking for. And then people need to make the hard decision sometimes to just say, no. Oh. Yeah, yeah. 
perfect pete look um, i really appreciate you taking time out to share your uh, your knowledge and uh, and great experience and i'm sure people are going to take a lot away from this uh, this conversation all right james it's been a pleasure to come on the podcast today and i'm looking forward to catching up soon awesome